Good morning. I hope that over this past week you've been able to focus on God and His grace, His unmerited favor and blessing in your life. As we saw last week and as the video skit reiterated this morning, it's all about Him. It's all about Him and His grace, His unmerited favor. This love that He offers is free, it's full and it's unconditional. And the grace that he offers to you and to me is abundant. But last week should have raised a question for you. It did raise a question, didn't it? So this morning, we're going to continue to look at God's grace, and we're going to look and answer the question that God's grace raises. Let's pray and ask him to bless our time together. Our gracious heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you have brought us to this place. We are here, Lord, to worship you and to hear from you. So, Lord, now it is our prayer that you will speak to us, that you will make clear to us what you have for us this morning. Heavenly Father, we love you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now let's make sure that we're all on the same page. This year we've been in the study of the books of First and Second Samuel, and recently we've been in the story of David. David is the king of Israel, and David is a man after God's own heart. He's the man who has an undivided heart for God. But even David sins. And we learned in Second Samuel chapter 11 that David sins, and he sins big. He commits adultery with Bathsheba, and he has her husband, Uriah, killed on the battlefield. And you might think that because it's David, because he's the king of Israel, because he has an undivided heart for God, that he is going to get away with this, but he doesn't. God brings the hammer down, and because of his sin, God brings calamity upon David. David is punished for his sin. Yet God, because of his grace, doesn't leave David in that sin. God demonstrates his mercy to David, and he forgives David. He wipes David's slate clean. The sins don't count against him, and David doesn't get what he deserves. But more than his mercy, God gives David his grace And God gives grace that wipes away, not only wipes away what he's done, but gives David what he doesn't deserve. David and Bathsheba have a son, and that son's name is Solomon. And Solomon is going to be the next king of Israel. He's the one who builds the temple. He's called the wisest man ever. And this son is, Solomon is the son of David and Bathsheba. This is grace. David gets what he doesn't deserve. And there is story after story of God demonstrating his grace, not only in Bible stories, but here right amongst all of us. Last week I told you Michelle's story. Michelle's a friend of mine, and she's been married twice, and both times before she was married she was pregnant. And she committed infidelity that caused the end to one of her marriages. Or there was Phil. Phil has seven felony convictions. Seven times he's committed a felony. Seven times he's convicted of that. A rap sheet that stretches across the whole United States. Then there's the story of Kim. 
Kim grew up in a Christian home, but lived in a home where it was more about rules than relationship. So Kim decided to, to make her own choices. And one of those choices to, was to marry a man who was not a follower of Jesus. Or how about Jane's story? Jane was in a homosexual relationship, selfish, by her own account was an idolater. But in each of these stories, in each of these situations, God shows up and demonstrates his grace. And none of those people get what they deserve, and each of them get what they don't deserve. They get God's grace. And that is our story as well. Each one of us in here don't get what we deserve. We get what we don't deserve. We get God's grace, his abundant, overwhelming, miraculous, scandalous, undeserved grace. But that raises a question. Where does this grace, where does this bountiful, undeserved, scandalous grace, where does this grace lead us? If this grace, if this grace that is there in spite of my sin and even because of my sin, if this grace is abundant and if this grace is scandalous and if it is undeserved, what is my response going to be to God's grace? Where does grace lead us? Well, you might think that there are two possibilities. One possibility you might think is that grace leads us to sin. If sin increased and grace increased all the more, then one possibility might be that sin leads us to grace because if I'm going to sin and grace is going to increase all the more, then sin really doesn't matter. In fact, this past week, I received a number of emails and comments from people that were concerned that my sermon last week may cause people to choose to sin because God's grace is so abundant. So one option or one possibility may be that God's grace leads to sin. Or the other possibility is that God's grace leads to righteousness and Christ-likeness. And that is the position, that is the truth that Paul is going to uphold. So now take your Bibles and let's turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, in the church Bible it's on page 799, Romans chapter 6. And in Romans chapter 6, we are going to see the answer to the question, where does grace lead us? Now, Paul recognizes that what he has written in Romans 5 verse 20, where sin increased, grace increased all the more, he recognizes that this is scandalous. He recognizes that people are going to have a difficult time with this. And he's writing to a people then and a people now who like the idea of a set of rules, what the Bible calls the law. He's writing to a people that like the set of rules that they can keep in order to earn their righteousness before God. And we often are the same way. We often think that we can earn our righteousness or our rightness before God, don't we? We think that 
God, if we do what he wants us to do, if we follow the rules, then God is going to favor us. And if we don't keep the rules, then God's going to be upset with us. He's going to be angry with us. So often we, we white-knuckle our way through our 15-minute Bible study in the morning. And we white-knuckle our way through that because we think to ourselves, if I don't do this Bible study, if I don't have my quiet time this morning, God's going to be angry with me. God's not going to bless me. He's not going to show me his favor. If you don't make it through, you're worried that God is going to turn away from you in disappointment and in anger. Some of you here who are Christians, who have been Christians for a very long time, you do the things you do because you're worried that if you don't follow the rules, God's going to be displeased and he's not going to favor you. And Paul says here that that's not the way it works. Paul says that our righteousness before God only comes through our trust and our faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. When Paul writes here where sin increased, grace increased all the more, he's turning things upside down. Or should I say he's turning things right side up. And he knows what's coming next. He knows that the question He's anticipating the question. He knows what the critics are going to say. They're going to say, if we get more grace, then why don't we just sin? Sin doesn't matter. Actually, sin might be the way to go because then I'm going to get more grace, right? So look what Paul says in Romans 6, verse 1. Look at his rhetorical question here. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? That's the question, right? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And hear this phrase, go on sinning. It's the idea of being in habitual sin. It's not the idea of one sin or maybe a sin now and then. It's the idea of a pattern of sin, habitual sin that continues. And this phrase, it's about the habitual sin. It's about, there's a paraphrase, the Phillips paraphrase says it this way, shall we sin to our heart's content in order to exploit the grace of God? Now, some people would answer yes to this. Some people would say, yes, we should go on sinning to exploit the grace of God. Those people are referred to as antinomians. Now, that's a seminary word. It's kind of a big word, but it's important to understand here. Anti means against. Nomos means the law. These antinomians are against the law. They're against the idea of keeping the law, of following what God says. And it is in their thinking and in their lifestyle. The antinomian is a person who says, I'm saved, but I can sin. God will forgive me, so why does it matter? And unfortunately, I'm afraid that there's people right here in the church that we live this way, we think this way, either consciously or unconsciously. Have you ever heard a person say, I know what God says, but I just want to be happy? Or, everyone does it, so why does it matter? God's going to forgive me anyway. These are people that are called antinomians. They're people that pervert grace. Antinomianism or any other view of Christianity that does not make you more like Jesus in thought or practice is not biblical Christianity. 
And so that's why Paul asked the question here, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? So in verse 2, we see his highly emotional response to that question, and you can hear his sense of outrage. Look at his blunt response. He says, by no means. He makes this strong negative interjection. You can hear the sense of outrage. By no means. Other translations say, may it never be, perish the thought. If you're looking at a King James Version, it says, God forbid. Paul rejects this idea in the strongest of terms. It's impossible, it's absurd, it's inconceivable, and it's inconsistent that anyone would ever sin in order to increase the grace of God. And then he steps back from the outrage, and he returns to logic, and he begins to explain. Look at it in the second half of verse 2. Look what he says. He says, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Now look at that phrase, we died to sin. Underline in your Bible the word died. You probably don't want to do that in the church Bible. But in your Bible, underline the word died. It's key to understanding this whole chapter. It's key to living the Christian life. And notice the word, died. It's in the past tense. We died to sin. It's not in the future tense. We will die to sin. It's not in the present tense. We are dying to sin. It's not an imperative, die to sin. It's not an exhortation, you will die to sin. It's in the past tense. You have died to sin. We died to sin, past tense. And the simple truth is that if you're a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian, you have already died to sin. It's a past event. You died to sin. So what does it mean to have died to sin? It means that you've been set free from the ruling power of sin. Sin is no longer your master. You are no longer a slave to sin. You no longer have to sin. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross and because of what he's done in your life and because of the grace that you have received, you have died to sin. You are no longer under its control. You, me, all of us who are in Jesus have the freedom not to sin. You have died to sin. In fact, as a follower of Jesus, as a Christian, you cannot sin and be happy. Sin and the Christian don't go together. You may sin, but you will not be happy. And as a Christian, if you choose to sin, one of three things is going to happen. Number one, it won't work. If you choose to sin as a Christian, it won't work. Envy, anger, jealousy, rage, greed, any of the sins that you used to commit before you were in Christ now will not work. You will not be happy. You will experience discontent. You will experience unfulfillment. You will be miserable if you sin so it won't work because now you are in Christ. So if you're a Christian and you choose to sin, number one, it won't work. Number two, God will not let you. God will not let you. Now, he may let you sin, but he will not let you continue in that sin. God 
will discipline you. And one of two things will happen. Number one, you will be so miserable that you will cry out to God to get out of that misery. Or number two, you will experience a premature death. Because God will not let you continue in the sin. So if you're a Christian and you choose to sin, there are three choices. One, it will not work. Two, God will not let you. And three, if you go back to your life of sin and you stay in that sin, it means that you are not saved. You are not a Christian. If you are able to go back to your life of sin and remain in that sin and the Holy Spirit does not tug at your heart and you do not feel a sense of conviction and God does not work to pull you back through repentance, it means that the spiritual indifference that you show likely means that you are not a follower of Jesus. You are not a Christian. So if you choose to sin, one of three things is going to happen. It won't work. God will not let you. Or if you continue and remain in the sin, you're not a Christian. You have died to sin. It is past tense because of Christ's work on the cross, because of what you have done in faith and acknowledging that and what he's done in your life. Your sin is gone. It, you, are, you have died to sin. So we said there's possibly two possibilities. We have just seen that one of those possibilities does not work. It's not actually a possibility because sin is in your past. You have died to sin. So now Paul turns us to the second possibility. And he's going to show that God's grace, his unmerited favor and blessing leads to righteousness and Christ-likeness. Look at verse 3. Or do you not know? And the word know here means understanding. Are you walking around with no understanding of this? Or do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Paul here is reinforcing the truth that we're dead to sin and he's setting up his next point that he's going to make. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, something happens. Something on the inside changes. We are identified with him in his death. The word baptized here does not mean we're immersed in water. What Paul is saying when we're baptized here, he's saying we are identified with Christ in what he has done for us on the cross. This is what happens. The moment that I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I am miraculously transported 2,000 some years ago and I am put up on the cross with Jesus and I am identified with his death. When he dies on the cross, I, my old self, my sinful nature, dies with him. I am dead to sin. So how can a person go back how can a follower of Jesus go back to that old life and continue in the sin that he was continuing in? Because something has drastically changed from within. Something has happened on the inside. First, you have died to sin. The old me has passed. But now look, not only am I dead to sin, but now I am alive 
in Jesus. Look at verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism. It's this idea again of regeneration. We were buried with him in baptism. Excuse me, identification. We're buried in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We had to die with him. Now look at that little phrase in verse 4. In order that we could have new life. In other words, A comes before B. I have to put my faith and trust in Jesus and what he did for me. When I put my faith and trust in him and what he did for me, there is going to be a death that occurs. He's going to baptize me. He's going to identify myself with him. And that has to happen in order that I may have new life. And this new life that he's talking about is qualitatively, totally brand new. It is completely different from the life that you had before Christ. You now have died to sin and you now have new life in Christ. A totally, completely brand new life. And this is exciting. This is what this is all about. You once were dead in your sin. You once were dead to sin. Now sin is dead to you, and you have new life in Christ. This should help us today, tomorrow, and every day from this point on, recognizing that I don't have to sin. I have died to sin. I now have new life in Christ. You are no longer under sin's power. It is no longer your master. You now have new life in Christ. But what does it mean to have new life? Turn, if you will, to page 824, to Galatians 2.20. Page 824, Galatians 2.20. What does it mean to have new life? It means that we have a new identity. Look at what Paul says in Galatians 2.20 and listen to how closely it mirrors Romans 6, 1 through 4. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. I have, the old self is gone. I have died to sin and now Christ lives in me. We who are identified with Christ, we who are followers of Jesus, we who are Christians are no longer sinners. Amen. We are saints. When you are in Christ, you are no longer identified as a sinner. You are now a saint. And this changes everything. Everything about your identity changes when you go from sinner to saint. 
All through Paul's letters, he identifies Christians as saints. It's the favorite title that he gives to Christians. He uses it about 60 times in the New Testament. And in the New Testament, a saint isn't referring to some dead old person, some old person who's died, who's been canonized, and now is a saint like St. August, Augustine or St. Patrick. No, it's referring to all Christians. You and me, we are saints. And it changes everything about our identity because we're no longer sinners. We are now saints. We are no longer captive to sin. We are no longer forced to sin because of who we are. We are now saints. Sinner is an identity. Saint is an identity. Now we are saints. Sinners sin because that's who they are. Saints sometimes sin, but that's not who they are. You and me, we are saints because of what Christ has done for us, because of the grace that God has given to us, because of the grace that God has shown to us. We are saints. You may have heard some people say that I am a sinner saved by grace. That's true. But the focus is in the wrong place. You are a saint. And if you're a sinner, it makes it easier to sin. But if you are a saint, if you are a saint, you want to live up to the expectation that God has for you because you are now dead to sin and alive in Christ. Amen. Sinner is an identity and saint is an identity. Every one of you who are in Christ, every one of you, are saints. Recently, there was a man named Chris who came into one of the pastors here at Calvary to visit. And he came in and he was going through a very difficult time. His life was a mess. He was trying to get things together. He was trying to bring it all around, but Chris wasn't able to do it. He had struggled with anger, and there were times that he'd have anger episodes where he didn't even remember what he said or what he did. The anger was so great. And not only did Chris struggle with anger, he struggled with lust and all the things that lust brings along with it. Well, Chris meets with the pastor at, here at Calvary, and they begin to talk about identity. They begin to talk about who someone is in Christ. And during the conversation, they started to identify in Scripture all of the claims that Scripture makes about who you are in Christ. And the pastor tried to reiterate with Chris, this is who you are in Christ. This is your identity. And Chris was able to claim and say every one of the claims of identity in Scripture except for, I am a saint. The pastor and Chris spent a lot of time trying to get Chris to say, I am a saint. Chris couldn't do it. For 45 minutes, they struggled. He would say, I'm a sinner. I will never be anything other than a sinner. I will never be able to get out of this. I recognize who Jesus is. I recognize what he's done for me, but I am a sinner. And so for 45 minutes, he would, they would try to, they'd go back and forth, and he would get, he would say, I'm a, 
And he could never get out, I'm a saint. But after 45 minutes of discussion and prayer and looking at the word of God, finally, Chris said, I am a saint. And to say the atmosphere in the room changed would be an understatement. Immediately, it was as if darkness went to light. There was a feeling of oppression in the room. There was a feeling of darkness. And when Chris said, I am a saint, that darkness went away and light entered the room. Chris was tired. He was beat up. He was worn out. But when he was able to say, I am a saint, it was as if energy filled his body. He was renewed. He realized that in Christ, he is dead to sin and he is alive. And he is no longer, therefore, a sinner. He is a saint. And it all happened because identity was changed from sinner to saint. You see, each one of us in this room who are in Christ Jesus are dead to sin. Our sin does not control us. So where sin increases, grace increases all the more. Because you are dead to sin, when grace increases, it cannot lead to sin. Where sin increased and grace increased all the more, grace leads to life. Grace cannot lead to sin. Grace must lead to life. And that grace transforms your identity from sinner to saint because you are no longer trapped in your sin. It is no longer your master. Christ is now your master. And you recognize that as a saint, you have life. And that life is big and wonderful and exciting. And it's a life that only comes through grace. Grace raises the bar, it raises the expectation, and it positively motivates you towards righteousness and Christ-likeness. The more grace, the more righteousness. The more grace, the more Christ-likeness. That's what grace does. So in my friends, in the stories from last week, in Michelle's story, Two marriages, pregnant in both of them before she's married. She commits adultery to end the first marriage. But God shows up, gives her his grace, his unmerited favor, his blessing. Michelle recognizes in that and through that grace, she has died to sin. She can't go on sinning because she is now a saint. And she knows that. And in her life, that grace has motivated her to righteousness and Christ-likeness. And now Michelle 
has a wonderful husband, children. She has a job in which she daily serves the Lord in what she is doing. A big, wonderful, exciting life because of grace. Or Phil, seven felony convictions the huge rap sheet, yet God comes into the prison. He comes into Jackson prison and turns Phil's heart of stone into a heart of flesh. That is grace. The sin increased, but grace increased all the more. And in response to that grace, Phil now has life, a big, wonderful, exciting life. He has a wife, a house, a dog. He has a job that in the email letter to us, he said, I daily think about the ways that I can share Jesus with the people that I work with. Purpose, life, big, exciting, wonderful. Or Kim's story, raised in a Christian home that's about rules and not relationship. So she makes her choices and she chooses to marry a man who's not a Christian. But God demonstrates his grace, his unmerited favor on Kim, and her husband comes to Christ. She raises wonderful children. She has wonderful grandchildren who know Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's God's grace. And now if you were to meet Kim, if I would introduce Kim to you, you would see a woman that is full of grace. She exudes grace in her person. Because God's demonstrated grace to her and it has motivated her to righteousness, to Christ-likeness, to life that is big, exciting, and wonderful. That's what grace does. Or Jane, homosexual relationship, idolatry, selfishness. But grace, God's unmerited favor comes in. And now, she is motivated to righteousness and Christ-likeness, and her life is big and wonderful and exciting. She has an orphan care ministry, a passion for the orphan, and she has a sensitivity of heart to those who are struggling with homosexuality. See, when grace enters the picture, it cannot lead to sin, because when you're in Christ, you have died to sin. You cannot sin any longer. When grace enters the picture, you have life. And it leads you, it motivates you to righteousness and Christ-likeness. I want you to know, I want each one of you to know the wonderful nature of of God's grace. He is a gracious God and he loves you and that love is free and full and unconditional. In his grace, it motivates you to righteousness and Christ-likeness. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this truth 
the truth that your grace cannot lead us to sin, but leads us to righteousness in Christ's likeness. And Lord, you are so good to us. You have given each one of us what we don't deserve. We don't get what we deserve. You in your grace have given to us what we don't deserve. And Lord, we thank you. We recognize, Lord, that there is nobody else that can do this. That it is you and it is you alone who gives grace full and free. And Lord, it is my prayer that each one of us would be motivated in our lives to be more and more like Jesus Christ every day. It's in his name we pray, amen.